So we come, uh, let me turn your attention to Genesis chapter 22, which is the passage that obviously I just read for you before we had our hymn. Um, um, and I want to, you know, basically tell us of this wondrous mystery that our sister Joyce have just, has just sung of. Um, off the paper, you know, when you read this story for the first time, when you just read it with fresh eyes, without any kind of understanding of what exactly is going on, you might read it and think this is a rather particular awkward story in the Bible. Um, of course, you look at the narrative of a man being asked by God to literally sacrifice his son, and you're thinking, why on earth is such a story like this in the scriptures? It's one of those ones where you think, I hope, it, I hope my friends or the intellectuals of our, of our day and age uh, today doesn't, you know, quiz, they don't quiz me on this kind of story or they don't interrogate me on this kind of passage because it is quite off-putting, so to speak. You can imagine, you can imagine so you're in a situation where you've been uh, uh, laboring or preaching to a friend at work or at home, wherever, and you've been, you know, going back and forth for the gospel. And let's say all of a sudden they're quite inquisitive and they come to church and they're like, okay, let me hear what this gospel is about. Let me hear what God has to say, you know, to my life. And then they hear the preacher read about God commissioning a man to go and sacrifice his son. Go take your son and offer him to me as a burnt offering. It's quite awkward, isn't it? We have here a story wherein the same God who blesses the womb, who gives fertility to those who are barren, is now asking for a child to be brutally murdered and offered to him as a sacrifice. Off, off the bat, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really compute well. It doesn't really, it doesn't really read well, does it? However, let's take the time to understand this passage. Let's take the time to actually kind of answer these mental, you know, default questions that sometimes arise um, and remove those barriers. Because once you do, I'm telling you, you have here a, a wonderful, wonderful story that points directly to a bigger picture, which we will, of course, uh, come to understand in proper detail. So let's allow the Holy Spirit to boost and increase our faith as we, as we go through this story, as we read through this narrative and unpack it together. So what I'll do is, is, is in threefold, um, explain the narrative, you know, like I said, once you look past the strangeness, it's a very simple story, it's not, it's not one that's got many parts, it's, it's quite straightforward, it's easy to follow. Um, however, it's, painting a, it's pointing to a picture that is being painted, it's pointing to a much bigger pe uh, picture, a much bigger message, and that's what I want to try and do by explaining the narrative. Um, what kind of lessons can we learn from the test? You'll see in verse 1 that God comes to Abraham and it's a test. What kind of lessons can we learn from us, from us, you know, in our, in our present day when we go through tests? What lessons can we learn from Abraham? Um, and thirdly, I want to take up the words, the very specific words of Abraham in verse 14, where he says, the Lord will provide. What does he mean by that? That's the, that, that, that is the crux of the message uh, today. Uh, not that my first two points are irrelevant or not as important, but... If you do start listening, listen to me at that point where I say the Lord will provide. That is the real crux of the, of the message. So let's, 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 let's start. So the narrative. Uh, uh, let's uh, uh, open up our time together with, with verse uh, 1 of the chapter. Verse 1 and 2 of the chapter. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And verse 2, he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of, Moriah, land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
God has come to Abraham and he wants to test him. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. The test is obviously very peculiar in the sense that it will result in a very huge degree of pain for Abraham if he does it, if he carries it out. Because God wants him to sacrifice his son. I think verse 2 is very key because it sets, the, uh, it, 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 in my opinion, it sets the tone for the entire chapter, verse 2. And even the wider story, I feel. I think verse 2 sets the, verse two sets the tone for the chapter and the big picture, you know, the, the Lord will provide narrative. I'll pick this up at the end of the sermon and, and I'll, I'll make specific reference to it. But I also feel like it sets the tone for how Abraham would have felt after hearing what God has told him to do. So verse 2, the, 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 seg- the segment I'm talking about, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. That is a tone-setting statement. Too many commentaries I read during the week or while I was preparing. Yes, Abraham is holy, and yes, Abraham was obedient, and yes, Abraham was, was, was willing to go through with this. But I feel like they were too quick to paint Abraham as one who was willing to just kill off his son as if he had no relationship with him. As if he couldn't wait to kill his own son at the moment God asked him to do it. He's so holy, yes, and he's so obedient towards God, but almost at the expense of, his, of a natural fatherly relationship with his son. Reading some of these, the, these commentaries and some of these thoughts, you would think as though Abraham didn't actually love his son. Abraham is not only a man filled with faith, he is not only a, a, an obedient servant to God, but he's also stoic and you know, void of emotions, of natural emotions, by the way. Not any emotion that he had to foster or learn, natural fatherly emotions, he doesn't have these. The natural love that any father would have towards their only son. I don't think you should read the text and look at Abraham and applaud him and be like, yes, your faith was so great. Um, and this test was an easy thing for Abraham to do. I don't think that's right at all. It was a test at the end of the day. It was a test. Tests are not easy. Why would, why would God test you with someone? Or why would God test Ab- Abraham with something that he could have done on autopilot, with something that was easy? Obviously, the test has to be quite challenging, doesn't it? As you can imagine, this, this, this command to go and sacrifice his only son was unfathomably difficult, incredibly heart-wrenching for Abraham to have to carry out. Some even went as far as saying he didn't have the law, so he didn't actually know that what he was doing was wrong. He didn't actually know that, animal, that uh, child sacrifice was wrong. He didn't know that the God of Israel, whom he was now serving and following, wouldn't want a uh, child sacrifice. But that is, to me, so absurd. So what if he doesn't have the law, the, the Levitical laws, which will obviously come later? I'm sure that the law to love his own child is written very firmly on his heart. Abraham himself was from a pagan land. He knows what sacrifice is acceptable to the God of Israel, and he knows what pagan sacrifice looks like as well, which often did include child sacrifice, which often did include taking their children, killing them, burning them on an altar of sacrifice, and offering it to strange gods. God, Abraham knew that the offering up of Isaac is not something that would have pleased a holy God of, of, of Israel. Again, consider who Isaac was. This is how we know that this command to take his son, his only son, would have grieved Abraham. Consider, think of who Isaac was. This is not just a random child. This is not just a, uh, this is not the ch- one child of 15 or 30 or however many Abraham has. This is one child. 
You see, God appears to Abraham long before, so let's, let's rewind now a little bit. Long before Isaac is even born, God appears to Abraham and he makes him a promise, a very specific promise. And he says, you, Abraham, in your old age, as you are now, you are going to be the father of a great nation. And your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Go outside, he says, look at the stars in the sky. Can you count them? Abraham says, no, of course I can't. And he says, that's as large, that's how many descendants I'm going to bless you with. And he says, I will establish, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. And Abraham hears this and says, are you, are you surely talking about me? How is this? I don't have any children. Uh, how, how am I going to have a descendant, uh, descendants as, as numerous as the night sky when I don't even have one child? He says in that conversation, my only heir, my only descendant right now is a slave, <laughs> is Eliezer. He, 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 he's the one in my home. That's, the only, that's who I'm giving my inheritance to when I die. I don't have a child of my own. I don't have a son of my own. On top of that, I'm old. And probably more importantly than me being old, my wife is old. Who's going to carry this child? My wife is past the age of uh, childbearing. She can't have children. She's been barren all this while, hence why we don't have any children. And now, I guess the ship has sailed. How are we going to have children? But God insists, God tells him again, you will have a child. And he blesses him with a child. And not only is Isaac this child that has been promised long before. But Isaac is also a child of a specific promise because God says on top of actually Isaac being born, he says, this child, in this child, I'm going to unveil a great plan of redemption, okay? Through this child, you're gonna have a child and through this child, through his descendancy, the savior of the world is coming. Okay, so you can see that redemption history is invested in this child, in this one child that Isaac has. And so Abraham and his wife are waiting for days, they're waiting for weeks, they're waiting for, for years. Time goes by, no child has come yet. Can you almost imagine the shame and embarrassment that an old Abraham, a frail old uh, Abraham and his wife Isaac would have been having? What, what business do you have holding on and clinging to a promise that you are going to have a child in your old age? For what reason? So maybe they think amongst themselves, maybe God needs help. He needs a bit of help delivering his plan, delivering on his promise. Maybe God has forgotten. And so let's put a plan together. Let's, Sarah says to her husband, Abraham, come, 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 come. Let's, let's, let's think of something. Let's be a bit intuitive here. I, I can't have children, but I know someone who can. There's my maid servant, my, maid, maid, my, my handmaid, Hagar. Why don't you sleep with her, have a child, Let's, have, let's, let's bring the child forth this way. At least he can be the child of promise, you know? And they do so. Ishmael comes. But God is not a man that should lie. God is not a man that cannot deliver on his promise. And he says, this son, your son Ishmael is not the son of promise. This is not the son I was promising you. And in due course, the real son of promise does come. And that is Isaac. Isaac comes. Isaac is finally born to an Abraham and a Sarah who waited years and decades for his coming. He's born to an Abraham and a Sarah who, when, who, who had already passed the age of childbearing. Born to an Abraham and a Sarah who was frail, who was old. Born to an Abraham and a Sarah who were even in some ways unbelieving when they tried to concoct this plan with Hagar and, and, and Ishmael. God doesn't need any help 
or man's ingenuity when it comes to fulfilling his promise. The child of promise as it comes. And Abraham, hoping against all odds, as we read in, 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 in uh, Romans 4, believes and he holds on to this promise and he has his son and Isaac comes. And here we are in chapter 22, verse 2. God says, this son, your only son, the one whom you love, don't go and bring me Ishmael. I want Isaac. Bring the precious one. Bring the one that you love. God wants Isaac to be offered up as a sacrifice to him. Of course, Abraham would have been distressed and, and heartbroken by this. Losing your only child, of course, is tough. It's, it's tough in and of itself. No questions asked. But imagine being the agent used to kill your own son. Imagine being the owner of the hands that kills brutally, brutally murders your own son. How does he even begin to explain this to his wife? We read in, in a few verses down that he rises up early in the morning. It could be he, hasn't even, he probably doesn't even tell his wife. He doesn't even tell Sarah. Can't bring himself to do it. Doesn't even know how to start the conversation. And of course, incredibly difficult enough to, to have to lose your own son. Can't even begin to put into words the pain. And, and even, of course, having to be the one that kills him. It gets even a bit more twisted and even a bit more difficult in Abraham's mind. Because not only is this Abraham's son, like I said, this is a son in whom redemption is invested. So much so that if Isaac dies, what's happening to God's plan of salvation that he said? What happens to the line, the, the communication line, as it were, that I have between God, between myself and God? I need, uh, this son needs to stay alive because in Isaac, that his, his descendants are going to, uh, he has, he's going to have a descendant that's going to save mankind. If I kill this son, if I kill Isaac, surely I'm destroying God's own promise. How does Abraham begin to reconcile that his son will become a great nation for whom the redemption of mankind will come, but he also has to go and offer him up as a burnt sacrifice? How does Abraham even begin to compute that? I've got three kids, one of whom is, is a newborn, you know, only two months old, uh, or two, will be two months tomorrow. And I always find it funny, I don't, I might not say it out loud, but I always find it eternally funny when people come to visit, when they're holding newborns, not just mine, but anybody, I see them holding newborns, and they're like, especially those that haven't had children of their own, and they're overly cautious, and they're, you know, holding the baby slowly, they're barely breathing, they don't want to drop the baby, or anything like that. Of course, it's granted, you know, appreciate your concern. Um, appreciate the fact that you're cautious, you don't want to hurt, 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 hurt the baby, but it's because you know that the child is precious. You know that you don't want to hurt the child. And so maybe you, 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 you come and you don't want to see any, any danger happen to the child. And so you see one child, maybe a bit older, a toddler is about to fall over and you jump out of your chair trying to protect the child. But the father and the mother have seen this child do all sorts of craziness, backflips off the sofa. They know the child is going to be okay. In this particular situation, Abraham and Sarah need Isaac to be okay because he is the child of promise. He, this is a child that is probably bubble wrapped. This is a child that is, is, is when, when he was sick, he needs to get better ASAP. He needs to get well quickly because in him is the plan of redemption. How does it make sense, therefore, that Abraham should be the person that should kill him? 
all these questions and all these concerns and all these conflicts are probably raging like a storm within Abraham. Not hard to imagine at all. And so we come again to verse 3, like I said. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Why does he arise early in the morning? Yes, again, a lot of the commentaries were saying, you know, this shows how obedient, you know, uh, Abraham was. And I'm not taking nothing away from his obedience. I'm not here giving you a new Abraham. I'm just giving you here Abraham that probably had a night that was full of a lack of sleep. I'm giving you an Abraham here that probably wasn't able to rest as, as, as ideally as he wanted to. Could it be that he arises early in the morning to saddle his own donkey because he needs something to do? Abraham is a very rich man. Abraham is a very old man. Does he really need to be saddling his own donkey, to be cutting his own wood when at the click of his fingers, 15 servants will arise and, and do, 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 do his bidding? Could it be that Abraham needed a form of escapism? You know, for, for, for us, when, we, when we're pressed with trials, when we're pressed with hardship, some people like to work. I, I know personally my mum, when we've, when we've had family issues and had family, fam, family difficulties, her kind of escapism, her kind of, 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 of dealing with it is working. And I know that's not a strange thing to some people. Some might be singing, some might be dancing, some might be writing poetry of some sort. Just, just something to express, to exhale, to just, just kind of deal with this, this hard thing that you're dealing with. Well, in spite of all of this, Abraham goes ahead. In spite of all of this, Abraham obeys. I'm not here saying that Abraham was questioning God, but Abraham felt that this was difficult. He takes his son, his only son, the son who he loves, and he's getting ready to offer him up as a burnt offering to God. We read in Hebrews 11, I didn't read it today, but we read in Hebrews 11, Abraham does this and he's probably thinking, perhaps God is just going to raise up this child, so I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. And so they continue on to Mount Moriah, the two men with him, and obviously he tells them to stay behind and he goes up by himself to be, uh, with, with Isaac to, to do the deed. Now, I feel like I'll be doing a huge disservice to Abraham and, 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 and his faith if we don't talk about how to engage with trials, how to deal with trials um, um, when we're going through them. And I don't think we find a better answer to how to deal with trials than in James chapter 1 and verse 12. So that's coming on to point two. What lessons can we take and what, how can we apply ourselves when we're going through trials and we're going through tests? Somewhat similar, maybe not as extreme, but somewhat similar to what Abraham is going through. How do we apply ourselves as Christians? What do we do? James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. We read earlier on in that same chapter, count it all joy because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It produces endurance. It produces the ability to keep going so that our faith can experience completeness and it comes to a place where it's lacking in nothing. What is that completeness and what is that position where your faith is lacking nothing? 
Let's come back to our verse that I just read for you earlier, James 1 verse 12. And we see it's the crown of life. When our faith is complete, we receive the crown of life. Blessed the man who remains steadfast because he will receive the crown of life which God has promised. James tells us, like I said earlier in verse 1, that we should count it all joy. Why should we be counting it all joy when we, when we pass through trials, when we pass through tests? What is the reason that Christians do this unnatural thing of counting it joy to go through trials? Why? What's the reason for that? Because the testing of your faith produces the ability to persevere. When you're pressed hard and you're made to go through the fiery trial, the fiery furnace, and you come out on the other side, your faith comes out more refined. Your faith comes out strengthened. You come out more resilient. You come out more battle ardent. You count it joy because you have stood the test and your faith has been increased. The battle scars that you had to endure during the fiery trial, they now become medals of honor. And they bear mark to the fact that you persevered through and you made it through the trial. Sometimes when we're in the trial, we get so consumed and we forget that we have a duty, we have a command here to remain steadfast under the trial. So what am I saying there? Even when you're in the darkest bit of the tunnel, remain steadfast there. Even when you feel like you're a boat that's stranded in the middle of an ocean, you can't see the sand, the, you can't see the, 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 the edge of, of the water. You just, all you see is an expanse of continuing water and that is your deep waters of life. Even there, remain steadfast. That's what James 1 is telling us. Remain steadfast. When you can't see an end in sight to the days upon weeks, upon months, upon years of struggling, remain steadfast even whilst you're there. Remain steadfast under the trial. You haven't remained steadfast just because the trial has come to an end. Just because the trial is finished. Even if the trial results in good news, you might be praying for the, the, uh, the healing of a loved one and by God's grace and by God's mercy, that loved one is healed and, and, and they come back and everything is good. And you think, yeah, I was, it's good. The trial is finished. I was steadfast. Not necessarily so. If during that same trial you were filled with disbelief and you were filled with anger that God could possibly do something like this to you, that's not really steadfast at all. Perhaps you even at some points turned to God and said, "Why? but surely I was living a life that was obedient. I didn't do anything to deserve this. Neither did the person that is sick. Why would you do That's not very steadfast. Perhaps you fall into a position of deep, distress and deep depression that your faith is almost on the on the verge of being shipwrecked that you're almost on the verge of turning your back on God and saying I can't serve a God that does something like this to me that's not quite standing steadfast at all and just because that test comes to an end when it did doesn't mean that you are steadfast let me explain to you what I mean you're watching a, a game and, and let's say your, your, your team is on top, dominating, and they are on top by double-digit points or whatever. But then slowly and surely, the opposition starts to claw their way back into the game. 
And what was once 20 points now becomes a 10-point lead, now becomes a five-point lead. And now things are looking a bit awkward because it looks like you're about to blow this lead. It's going to be embarrassing. Then all of a sudden, whilst you're on your, your, your last back foot, the whistle blows, the game over. You've won, you've got what you wanted, but it doesn't mean you enjoyed. You were just lucky. You were just lucky the trial ended when it did. You were just lucky that the, 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 the clock ran out when it did. And for some of us, we can waste the time whilst we're under the trial by not persevering properly. We're just, we're just managing, so to speak. We're just coping. So how do we actually endure under the trial? You persevere by not necessarily focusing on the end date or by, 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 by looking to the date when everything is going to get better. You persevere by being obedient. Look at Abraham. Obedience is what marked him. Yes, he felt the distress. Yes, he felt the pain, but he was obedient. Even to the very end. We're going to see that it takes a dramatic last minute stopping of Abraham before he actually goes through this. Obedience is what marked Abraham throughout this process. Don't allow Satan to gain a foothold when you're going through the, 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 the thickest part of the trial. Don't allow Satan to come with his lies. That's when you're probably most vulnerable. That's when you need to be resilient. That's when you need to stand firm. Focus on the promises of God. Abraham doesn't quite understand why God is sending him to go and kill his own son. But he says, you know what? God will at least raise this son up for me if I have to go through this. And he goes. And he's doing it. Real faith deals with affliction and it deals with tests by persevering. It clings to Christ even in the midst of a trial. Standing fast is not only a command, but it also shows us something as well. Let's go back to uh, James uh, 1 verse 12. We're told to stand steadfast under the trial. We're told to stand firm. If we do that, it shows us something that we have within ourselves, okay? Follow me here. So the second part of of James 1 verse 12 says... uh, Uh, Let me just read the whole verse. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under the trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. What's the crown of life? It's basically uh, the the uh, consummation of our faith. Uh, When we're we're making it to glory, we're seeing Jesus Christ, our faith becomes sight, uh, whether we we meet him in the air or we die and we go to glory. That's the, 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 the crown of life, the commensuration of our faith. And who has God basically said will receive the crown of life? So he's saying, you go through a trial, if you stand steadfast, you'll get this crown of life. Who gets that crown of life? Is it those who have, st- who, who have stood the test? Is it those who didn't bicker? Is it those who endured? Those people, yes, they, they will endure, they, they will receive the crown of life, but that's not how James finishes the verse. James finishes, finishes the verse by saying, if you endure, you receive the crown of life, and God has promised this to who? To those who love him to those who love him. Our enduring under the trial shows that we love God. Our persevering and our standing firm shows that we love God. You know that the road is extremely tough, but you keep pressing on because you know that it's only God that has the words of eternal life and you trust him. You can't go to anybody else. 
God doesn't give us the gift of faith in a vacuum. He actually attaches it to our emotions. He attaches it to our love so that we believe in God and the same God that we believe in, we love him. We're moved to him. We, are a, we, we love God. We are loyal, devoted to him. And so if you're wondering how to stand firm, I guess the, 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 the short answer to my question here is, if you're wondering how to stand firm under a trial, teach yourself how to love God. Teach yourself to love God with all of your heart, with all of your body, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and you will find a person there that is going to stand firm under any trial because they love God. Every trial will always have that, that, that temptation to, to turn their back on God, to be bitter, to be angry, to ignore God, to forsake the place of prayer. But you can resist all of that by training yourself to love God. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And so that's, that's what I want to say on, on, in terms of lessons with, with regards to standing, standing firm under the test. Now I want to come back to the narrative. And I really want to unpack exactly what I think is the big story, the great plan of redemption that we have here, almost like in the, in the, in the background of this narrative. Okay? So Abraham, as we've seen, torn, heartbroken, distressed, but he still goes. And he's about, and he, and he, and he takes his son. Preparations are made. They're, they're up the mountain now. He's, he's built the altar. He's laid the wood on the, on the he's, laid, he's carved the wood. He's laid it on the altar. Abraham, Abraham takes his son, binds him, puts him on the wood, takes up the knife, and he's probably got it above his head, ready to plunge it into his son. And then literally at that last second, as it were, you see that dramatic fashion as it unplays for us, an angel of the Lord stops him in his tracks and he says, do not lay a hand on that boy. Do not lay a hand on that boy. And Abraham stops, of course doesn't harm, harm his son. He lifts up his eyes, it says, and he looks behind him and he sees there's a ram that's stuck in the bush. And he offers that ram as an offering to God instead of his son, Isaac. Come now to verse, is it 14? Uh, sorry, verse 14. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. I don't think this was an altar built out of relief. You know, an altar of, wow, that was close. I think this was an altar that was steeped and built in faith, a forward-looking faith. The Lord will provide. Looking forward to the fulfillment of this promise that the Lord will provide. Now we start to see what this big picture is. Now we start to see that God is actually dramatizing and showing Abraham something here. That he is going to provide something. What is this big picture? What is being shown to Abraham and even to us, his descendants, who by faith have been uh, drafted into this to, to this to this uh, to this to this story, as it were? From the very beginning, even with Adam and Eve, God has been in the business of saving souls. Okay, God has been in the business in the business in the department of saving sinners. 
This great plan of salvation is, is being dramatized. This very plan that God has to save mankind is being dramatized, is being shown to Abraham before his very eyes. To us, it probably looks quite obvious. We can probably pull out some parallels. I'm going to um, um, uh, mention some, sorry. I'm going to mention some of those uh, parallels that we can see between Abraham's narrative and the actual uh, big picture itself, and that once I explain it. But to Abraham, the specific details are not all there. He doesn't see clearly. He's still 2,000 years before the promised one is going to come, before the promised son, the real promised son, is going to come. What he does see is probably patchy. What he does see is probably not fully complete. It's not in its full detail. But we know this, that Jesus Christ said that he rejoiced to see my day. Abraham saw me, and he was glad. He saw the unfolded plan of God, even at this very moment on the altar, on this mountaintop. He knew that God was going to provide, and he builds his altar, and he says the Lord will provide. Provide what? What's, 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 what's going to be provided? A substitute. A substitute is going to be provided. A substitutionary sacrifice. Not just for Isaac, that was the ram. Abraham has dealt with, Abraham has dealt with Isaac's substitute in that specific moment. His faith is, his, 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 his faith is looking forward. This altar is looking forward. He's going to provide something in the future. He's going to provide something in the future that is not just only going to benefit Isaac, but it's also going to benefit me. And it's not just only going to benefit me, it's also going to benefit all of the descendants that come before us. All of those descendants that were as numerous as, as, as the night sky, it's going to benefit all of them. The Lord is providing something for all of us. A substitutionary sacrifice. And who is this substitute? Second parallel, a son. A son is going to be provided. When Abraham has his arms lifted and is about to plunge it into his own son, God stops him. God stops him in his tracks. And obviously God tells him of the, of the, of the ram that is stuck behind him. But God doesn't stop himself. God provides a son and he crushes him. He pleased the father to crush him. He pleased the father to crush his own son, Jesus Christ. Even look at the location where they are. Mount Moriah, third parallel. God's son, the substitute, will be provided for on this mountain, he says in verse 14. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. On this very mount is where King Solomon, thousands of years later, builds the temple. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of animal sacrifices are made daily, monthly, yearly. Pointing to who? Pointing to the son that is going to come and offer up his life once and for all as a one-time sacrifice. He's crucified in Calvary, which is actually in the same region as Mount Moriah, just outside the city walls. The parallels are strikingly obvious. A substitute is made. A son is provided. And it's in the same place. It's in the same place. This God of salvation is a providing God, is what Abraham is saying. This God provides. For salvation to work, my dear friends, God has to provide. It is imperative that he provides. God is too holy and too pure to have sinners before him. But yet this is the same God that has a heart full of kindness and a heart full of love. And he desires that none should perish, absolutely none. God has set an appointed day where he will judge, where he will return and restore and restore, holy, and restore uh, perfectness in this world. 
But before he does that, in his mercy, he has provided a way of escape. He has provided a way where you don't have to be the recipient of that, judge, of that justice, of that judgment. God has said that the soul that sins shall surely die. But he has provided as a substitute so that you don't have to die. You don't have to die because he has provided for our lack. We have, as sinners, an insurmountable debt. We have this great inability to repay the wages of sin. The Bible is so clear. If you sin, you die. It's a simple equation. It's a simple exchange. The wages of sin is death. What does God say to Adam and Eve in the garden? The day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. The wages of sin has always been death. The soul that sins shall surely die. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. We're guilty a million times over, aren't we? In sin, our mothers conceived us. Our hands are stained with the deepest dye, with the deepest guilt of sin. But this is a God who provides a way of salvation for our helpless souls. This is a God who provides. Let's consider three things about his provision and then I'll bring it to a close. Consider how costly this provision is. We said that this provision is God's son. The only and very begotten son of God dying as an innocent man for guilty sinners. He didn't spare his own son. He spared Abraham's son, but he didn't spare his own. He gave him up freely for all of us. Consider how costly this provision is. How can God provide his own son and accept anything less? God's provision is enough. God cannot provide a way of salvation and take anything less than that. He can't be satisfied with anything less. So the choice is yours. Do you take God's provision or do you keep living in your life of rebellion and sin? Do you take God's provision or do you keep living and trying and persevering in a lifeless religion that offers no hope? That all it does is set for you a, a list of rules and duties that you must obey in order to earn your salvation and to work your way to, to, to heaven? Do you continue to forge and, 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 and try and carve out your own way of salvation or do you just take God's provision? Do you live in ignorance? That, this even applies to you. The person that says, oh, well, Christianity is not really for me. I wasn't really brought up in the church. You know, you do you, I do me kind of thing. It applies to you. You don't, ha you don't have a position where you stand outside of this provision. You either take it and you're safe with God's provision or you don't and you experience judgment. Not taking God's provision, his precious, costly son, will be the worst decision you ever make in your life. Secondly, consider how uh, miraculous the provision is. The, cost, the, 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 the provision is costly, is God's own son. The provision is miraculous. It had to be God that provides. It had to be God that helps. God himself has to become flesh. Look at the song that we just sang, or we had Joy sing for us. Behold the wondrous mystery, the theme of heaven's praises robed in frail humanity. God has to become human. He has to be born of a virgin. The eternal, infinite God who needs nothing, now crying in the manger as a baby. Look at the wonderful, miraculous mystery that we have through God's provision.
God who knew no sin, becoming sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Look at the wonderful, miraculous mystery of God's provision. Even though we had gone astray like sheep and had turned to our own ways, God lays upon him, his own son, the iniquities of us all. Our sinfulness is imputed to him. We no longer die because he has died in our place. Look at the wonderful, miraculous mystery of God's provision. There is no other way that man can be saved outside of God's own provision. No amount of effort, no amount of good work or good deeds or good religion. Someone said you're better off trying to get to the moon on a rope made of sand by trying to get to heaven based on your good works. It's impossible. You need the divine miracle of God to be saved. No amount of sacrifice on your part is, 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 is worthy. Even if Abraham had sacrificed Isaac, even if there's a thousand sacrifices of Isaac ten times over, there's still but filthy rags before a holy God. The only way of, God, the only way of being saved is through God's provision, his only son the son whom he loves, Jesus Christ. Christ must die. Christ has died. He's died once for all. Come to God, therefore, with nothing in your hand. Bring nothing and cling to him. Cling to the cross. Come to God naked and come to him for dress. Come to God helpless. Come to him for grace. Take hold of his provision and nothing else. Thirdly, consider the love, and I'll end here. Consider the love behind this provision. Oh, God demonstrates his, his unique, precious love for his enemies by dying for them. People don't die. People rarely die for people that they love. People do not die for their enemies. But God shows us that his love is unique. It is like nothing else that we've ever seen. He provides his own son to die for enemies. For those that were estranged from him, from those that hated him. God loves, and so God provides. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Oh, being rooted and grounded in, in love, we pray that you may know and have the strength to be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and what is the length and what is the height and depth. And just to know what is the love of God that surpasses knowledge. I just want to know what we can't even know. I just want to know this deep love of God. I just want to know how wonderful this love is. Very shortly, we're going to be singing these words. This is the power of the cross. Son of God slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. The choice is simple. Do you take God's provision? Do you take his son, his only son, the son who he loves, Jesus Christ, or do you reject it? Takes provision. Glory, praise, and hallelujah to the God of our salvation who provided his son a way of escape. The Lord will provide.